Welcome back, episode, sorry, I have to check, 66, uh, it is Tuesday, and I wanted to start by, we had a Burger King moment this week, I think it was Sunday, it was awesome, Bloomberg with the most tone-deaf tweet of all time, I, I think I think this one tops it, I know you guys said you hadn't seen it, we, we talked about it briefly before, they, uh, <laughs> I think it was a Bloomberg opinion on Twitter, came on and said, inflation hurts the most. For those making under three hundred thousand dollars per year, here's how to deal. And everyone like it just they got ratioed immediately. And if you don't know what ratioed means, that means you had more replies than you had likes, which is a really really bad thing. That means people got so angry about it. That's probably what they were going for. Is just that they just knew that it was going to piss everybody off. But the entire internet all came together and was like, yeah, okay, this is great. Here's how you, uh, here's how you avoid inflation. Just, uh, just stop being poor. Super easy guys. Just, uh, you know, Bloomberg really solved it here. They said, what was it? Uh, uh, forget meat, like go to lentils, take the bus and do a bunch of stuff. And my feed for the past two days has literally just been memes about lentils, which is awesome because I haven't thought about lentils in years and it's great. You know, it actually made me kind of want to like, go out and, you know, do some traditional Italian cooking and stuff like that. Somewhere out there, the vegans are cheering. Yeah. They're there like, was, We're doing the right thing. You're right. You're absolutely right. I forgot about that. There was literally a whole section of people under there that were like, wait, these are like really good things if you're a vegan and you don't want to do this. And everyone's like, nah, we're just here to burn Bloomberg. <laughs> what? I, it's always just a good reminder of like, there's, I feel like there's brands that just totally get it. And we like to cite those brands. I like Wendy's, I think really kind of gets it. They speak to their audience well. Slim Jim does a good job. Um, there, there's a couple food brands and very, very, very few news outlets. Morning Brew, I kind of, I they've found their tone. I mean, Matt, I don't know. I'm sure you probably follow them, Joe. I don't know if you do, but I, we get their news in the morning. And for a short period of time, they were getting a little spicy, a little political and stuff. And now they've really found it where they kind of just like state the political news and then move on and talk about the business stuff, which I, I always like. The memes are great. They've got this guy working for them, Dan Toomey. He is just absolutely hilarious. I could watch his videos all day. They're so funny. And they're like, they talk about what's actually going on, but in total meme format. And he does a great job. He's good at it. He's on, I, I just, I'm always so impressed by him. Yeah, he's good. He's put out several videos that were like fantastic that I guess maybe TikToks are what they were. I'm not sure, but they were fantastic. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's part of the whole idea that if you're a successful brand in the modern era, you can't be tone deaf. You have to understand your audience. You have to understand what they're feeling, where they're hurting. I think that's the most important part. And you have to be able to put it together in a quick, snappy format that kind of grabs the listener or user's eye. And we've mentioned before, I, I truly do believe that's the reason that TikTok got such a massive following in such a short amount of time. Is It's the best possible outlet after Vine, I mean, RIP Vine, that was definitely when we were growing up, but same exact idea, super short videos, that short message, uh, you can edit it, usually music behind it, you can, it, it, it basically sets up anyone with a really good sense of humor and an eye for what's going on in the world to capture an audience quickly and impress them with consistently good products and media. And I, it, I'm just, I'm never ever surprised whenever I see people with hundreds and hundreds of thousands of followers on TikTok that are able to convert it into businesses. And we recently found out, actually, I know I've been talking for a while, I'll get off it for a minute, but we recently found out one of my roommates, uh, very good friends, ran a 
super popular Twitter page, the uh, Positive Pineapple, which I don't know if you guys ever saw it. I, I followed it for quite a while without knowing. And I was like, holy shit. I was like, that was you? And she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was really fun. And I, I enjoyed doing it. And I was like, you had, you had several hundred thousand people following you. And you... You still have a you still have a day job. What what are you doing? Why why didn't you just convert that into customers and create a market? Like there's obviously a market for that content. Why didn't why didn't you just turn this into a business and do this instead of waking up at six a.m. and going to your job? That's you really flopped here. You really flopped. Yep. And she still actively do it today. I just looked it up. I'm trying to find it. Or or is it like uh, something she did in her past life? I don't, I don't remember seeing anything past the last year or so about it. So I think she quit doing it, but let me see if I still follow. Yeah. Positive pineapple people. Oh yeah. I guess it didn't have that many followers, but still it, it was, it definitely got good interest and people really liked it. And if you have that following, you can convert and scale. I mean, I like to argue that if, if you're able to assemble a social media following of over a hundred thousand followers based upon an idea that isn't just about you because that's what most people try to make their social media about but like based around maybe you and an idea or an idea or something that everyone wants to get behind that's that's like finding the gold at the end of the rainbow and all you really have to do is just trace it back and build the market around that oh yeah people love to support products and ideas that um that you know they identify with make them feel good and uh can really capture them they right. want to support those brands. If you brand that, put out a little bit of merch, people will easily pay 10 bucks for a t-shirt. I mean, and just continue to scale. Like you said, once you have that base cult following, you're, you're kind of there. Yeah, so think about the NFL. You're a diehard Steelers fan, I know that. And why? Half the reason, you just live in the city, but you've chosen to completely buy into this community. And if they do stuff, you'll support them and spend money on it because you associate with that fan base, right? Yep, 100%. And... Uh, and kind of to your point, I feel uh, it, it kind of goes hand in hand there with brands created on the internet, followings like that. Yeah, yeah, undoubtedly. Also, how's your virtual racehorse doing? <laughs> I mean, to ask about that. Uh, <laughs> I get offers for her every day. I'm, I, I was gonna breed her, but you gotta pay money to breed them, and it's not, not in the market right now to drop a hundred bucks to breed her and. And honestly, I might just post her for 0.05 ETH and, and see if anyone bites because uh, she could. There's potential she could go for that. I get offers for 0.03 ETH. So um, I think I paid like 0.028 ETH maybe for her. And I, I know the, the price of ETH. I keep saying ETH, it's Ethereum. Um, but I know the price of that fluctuates daily. So, but. I think it's interesting. I, I'm. St- I'm almost not surprised that they have more users now than they used to, but it was one of those things that was definitely kind of a weird little cult for a little piece of time. We started kind of tracking it, what, like August? Um, yeah, yeah. I think that's whenever we did bring it up and first mentioned it on the show, and then I got I got into it um, at the end of January when I had two weeks off in between jobs to kind of deep dive into another world. And, uh, and obviously my day job has been just eating away at my time recently and the new semester here. But once the semester's over and my day job isn't as demanding, I'll dip my toe back in. Probably to, probably won't sell them off yet because they're, like I said um, a couple episodes ago, I guess it was more than a couple episodes ago, time flies. But they're airdropping tokens soon. So I would like to get the first batch of tokens that they release before I sell off my horses. I think it makes sense for a community like that. And they, their goal is to, to grow and get as many users because those users turn into 
money and fees pretty much which is what you know keeps their company flowing so I think the airdrop is a really cool idea. I There's been a lot of different little crypto companies doing similar things like that. And um, one I did want to bring up at one point or another, we don't have to do this now, we might we could do it later, but the uh, Board Ape Yacht Club is a project, an NFT project that we've talked about in the past that is just had wild success. These people built, I don't want to say like, pictures of monkeys they built a community and then structured their product around it and the nft conversation is always very odd and goes in a couple different ways and half the crowd usually says okay that's fine i screenshotted it and now it's mine and the other half the crowd says no you can't do that you don't own the code blah 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 and then you go back to the first crowd and they say dude who who gives it like it, it doesn't really matter at this point it's just a picture and then the second crowd ends up saying, well, it's about the community and we've all united around this core central idea of, I couldn't tell you what the core central idea is, I really don't know, but they seem like they're having a really good time. So, do we want to do that one now or later? Go for it, you're already on it. Okay, yeah, I probably walked into that trap. All right, so that that company, the Board Ape Yacht Club, I don't know if you call them a company, or a Web3 organization, I guess, recently launched ApeCoin, which is, all right, there may be some workarounds here. Basically, it's it's like the equivalent of a Web3 stock split. And the reason I say that is because this organization released a set number of projects or, or of pieces within their project, the NFTs, and they gained such popularity to the point where the celebrities who have all the buying power in America and the world pretty much just dropped whatever they needed to to acquire one of these pieces. And when they did that, they bumped pretty much everyone else out of the market. There's really no way for you or I to just walk over and say, yeah, I'd like one of these board apes. I think the lowest ones in the market are in the 10, 20,000s right now. It's, it's, it's like buying a car, which is something that would have sounded absolutely insane to me five years ago but they realized that their community has kind of hit its peak there's really no one else that's going to be joining this or it's going to be trickling in so i said how do we get more people into this community well okay so let's create a dao which is a decentralized autonomous organization i believe let me confirm that real quick i always always have to confirm that but uh, either way, it uh, that's basically what it is. And the way that you run something like this is you issue what's called an ERC-20 token. Think of that basically just as a public stock. That is essentially what it is. And you don't have to worry about any of the shenanigans and the words behind it, the ERC-20 and all that stuff, blah, blah, blah. It's run on Ethereum. You don't need to worry about that. It is essentially a public share of a company. And so you can purchase these tokens for their DAO, DAO, which is the Decentralized Autonomous Organization. And they, they they allow you to have votes, much like a share of a public company would. And part of the purpose is that it allows the community to propose projects and ideas and then vote on it based on the number of shares you own in that DAO. Does that sound familiar? It should. That's exactly how a public organization is run. <laughs> but... The other point, I think, is that they wanted to give the schmucks like you and I, who 
don't have $20,000 to drop on a picture of a monkey, the opportunity to buy this token, which is hovering at about $14 uh, per token right now, the opportunity to purchase that and participate in their community while also fueling that community through the funding. So I don't know about you guys, I actually do plan to go purchase a few because this is an organization that we've talked about in the past that I think would just be a blast to be a part of. It's, it's really just fun and entrepreneurial. It makes no sense. And because it makes no sense, it's fun. I, it, it looks awesome. They had, they had an in-person event in Miami last year where you could only get in if you had an NFT of a board ape, which is just super dystopian and hilarious and weird. I, I don't know. It, it's one of those, it's one of those like the meme with Squidward rocking in the Krusty Krab, just saying future, future. Like that's, it's exactly what it brings me to. It makes no sense. I love it. I totally want to participate. So maybe, uh, maybe we'll get on the ape train. Yeah, I would definitely buy um, an ape coin if it wasn't too outrageously priced. Fourteen and, bucks. And it's, and it's not because you know of all the hype or anything. And I'm trying to ride coattails, like I'm trying to get in on the GameStop hype. Um, at the end of the wave, and it's more or less just because you know it's something that we believe in, and it looks fun. We've done research into it. I remember when we were first getting into the world of NFTs. I so foolishly thought that we could just go casually go buy one. And I was like, oh my God, this is so cool, guys. Look at Bay C, Board Ape Yacht Club. I was like, oh, we can afford one. What are these run? And then I look them up on OpenSea and I'm like, oh, 1.2 million. Okay, never mind. <laughs> yeah. I have to correct myself real quick. You're, you're right. I, I totally undershot it. It says, for each Board Ape you own, you're entitled to 10,094 Ape. That's APE is basically like the stock taker. That's $150,000 in today's prices, about half of what you'd need to buy yourself another board ape. So yeah, they're at like 300 bucks a pop right now at minimum. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a Lamborghini. So, <laughs> <laughs> but it's worth grabbing a coin now, whether or not because you think the value of these are going to continue to go up or just because you enjoy the community aspect of it. But like John said, it's all in good entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial. I can't speak today. It's a good entrepreneurial try. spirit. I dig it. I'm um, sorry. It was a long day. I rambled to my boss at the end of the day, at the end of the day too. And I was like, excuse my rambling. It's been a long day. <laughs> just imagining this is kind of becoming like Scientology where like you enter <laughs> in at the basic level, which is buying one coin. It costs $300. It's like, to graduate to the second to the next level of admiral in Scientology, you have to buy fifty ape coins, and then you will learn more about the community. But if you buy a hundred, you can get more. It's like and it's um, like Tom Cruise is just at the top. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Except it's it's not it's, it's little yachty. <laughs> yep. It's Gary V and the Paul brothers at the top of it, just waiting for you. Yeah. <laughs> Trying to sell you their products. <laughs> yeah. It does. It, it is worse. Gary V and the Paul brothers is the head of this pseudo uh, religious organization or uh, Tom Cruise. Oh, it's, my God. Mm. <laughs> no, it's just going to be all the NFL players and NBA players at this point. Uh, They're so into it. I think... Um, Oh God, where was I going to go with that? It's it's just kind of hilarious. Like it, it does remind you of when you were a kid and they have like the fundraisers where like, oh yeah, go out and sell so many tickets for this and now you get access to the next level. <laughs> and it just keeps going up and up and then some kid wins an iPad and you're like, how did he sell a thousand tickets but he's just got a rich uncle? <laughs> oh, I remember those days. They'd call you down to the auditorium for the school fundraiser and they'd be like, you got to go out and sell these tickets or these magazines. And if you sell this many, you get 
this prize and it was like just so such an unachievable there was um yeah there was always something at the top that like no one could reasonably get yeah it was like uh can't like you said an ipad it'd be like an ipod touch it made you dream no <laughs> <laughs> you have to be the greatest salesman of all times yeah at like age nine <laughs> yeah. Well, the fun thing for projects like this is that almost gets viable because you can form an organization to buy up stuff. So I think, and this is not a new concept, I think we're going to start to see groups of folks that operate in this area come together, pool their money into, a, into syndicates, and this has been happening, and they're going to buy up controlling shares of uh, these DAOs just so that they can vote and they could do like basically, you know, like, almost a hostile takeover. And uh, I mean, it's similar to when you have SPACs and holding companies and private equity that comes in and says, yeah, we want to change the McDonald's board around. So they end up buying a controlling amount of shares of McDonald's stocks so that they can influence every vote. And then they just, they boot the people out that they don't want and get their own people in and then change the whole company around. Uh, Carl Icahn is a great example of that. I mean, he's, he's basically made his fortunes over, maybe not hostile, but he essentially comes in and takes over the company fixes what he thinks is wrong and then ends up creating value and reselling it. Makes sense. So who's going to be the Carl icon of web three? I think it's going to be really interesting and it's, you know, could be the, uh, uh, Billy, what's his face? The guy who started Dogecoin or uh, Gary V and the Paul brothers. Absolutely. going to have some kind of say in this, all the celebrities that own all this stuff. I, I, I would be absolutely shocked if we don't have, government organizations and Congress people and the politics all piling in. And once they start to understand the value of it and th they start their own organizations to run it because they don't have to, they don't have to go around all the regulations. They can just do whatever they want. <laughs> yeah, it's just going to be interesting because, and obviously as he approaches this level, it gets increasingly political, yep. but the people that actually understand how these NFT and Web3 projects work and the value of them and all that type of stuff. They're not the ones who hold any of the value in these organizations, corporations, whatever you want to call them, just kind of like in real life. <laughs> so decisions are going to be made by people like the Logan brothers who have not a clue what is going on other than that Gary Vee called them up and said, hey, you need to hop on and buy one of these uh, monkey pictures and it's going to make you lots of money. And they're like, okay, we're going to buy the monkey picture. And now they have plenty. But, like, those are the people that will be making decisions. See, that's it's what I've been saying. The valuations of stuff doesn't matter. Everyone's, everyone's talking about the gas prices. And I'm like, you're focusing on the wrong thing. We need to be focusing on the amount of commodities we produce and the amount of people we have. If you just focus on what everything costs, nothing's going to make sense. Because pictures of monkeys are selling for $300,000. Lamborghinis are selling for two fifty. Like, I... The, the price itself in dollars no longer matters. You need to get off that. It just, we need to start thinking in different terms. I don't know how we think. I don't know how we fix it. I'm not smart enough to fix it, but I like to noodle on it and try to maybe figure something out. That's an incredible way to put it. I've never heard someone put that so elegantly. Thanks. Pictures of monkeys are selling for $300,000 and a Lamborghini is selling for $50,000 less. You can get Let a Corvette for 70. <laughs> yep. That is, that's jarring to say the least. And then people are, like you said, dwelling on gas prices and other prices. And, and it's when you take a step back, 
nothing makes sense if you look at it from that angle anymore. So what always shocks me? We have actually it's it's not shocking at all. So we have like super super intelligent older folks who've lived through different crashes, and they say, "Oh, you guys are going to learn. It's all going to come tumbling down." And I said, "Well, yes, but actually no." So you're thinking of this in terms of old world economics, which yes, if you see this, it would make perfect sense, and you'd be like, "Okay, this is obviously a massive bubble. It's all going to explode." We don't live in the old world economics anymore. It's different. It is completely different. We live in the new world economics where nothing makes sense. And we have not rewritten the system to make sense. And I, I don't know when that's going to happen. I guess we're actively rewriting. So, Matt, you said this in pre-show. And you compared it to this new the new Web3 industry is basically like the caveman just discovering fire. I completely agree. This is the mid to late 90s of the Web2 internet in which there was just a few people that understood how to do the coding and the production of programs. And those people controlled everything that happened on the internet. The rest of us, and mind you, majority of the world, I don't think, had adopted the internet at this point. But the people that did really didn't have any control. They could just participate in the world or not. And then as you move to the early 2000s, upwards of 2010, which, I mean, that's a decade. That's not that long in the grand scheme of things the amount of people who can now produce applications on the iOS ecosystem or Windows probably much more broadly, it it's just, it's a ginormous difference in the amount of people who could do that. And now you have much more community equity of people who can control it. And it's more of like a, it's more of like a, we all kind of own the internet sort of thing. Then you hit the point where the government figures out oh, wait a minute, everybody likes this, and now they control everything on it, and so now we've moved over to the next iteration. But we are still in that there's 1% of the population, under, less than 1%, understands how to actually build in this space. The rest of us who choose to participate in it are completely at their mercy. Yeah, I'd agree. Yeah. And then you start to think of it, that less than 1% that actually understand how to build in that space they may not even be names that we recognize right now because I see everything Mark Zuckerberg's doing in the term in terms with Meta. And granted, I do like the way he's branding and moving, and the Oculus is a brilliant device. But sometimes I see some of the decisions he makes, and I, I wonder: does he truly understand the Web three space? Like what? And I don't know his whole direction that he's going. I guess it's impossible to tell where he's going right now because he hasn't. They haven't made any announcements yet besides the Oculus. That's kind of their their magnus opum at this point is their Oculus headset. But you have to figure there's got to be more to it. And I'm sure we'll see within the next five, ten years. But, you know, I, I start to wonder, is that 1% that understands how to build in that space? Are we going to see a new emergence of faces? The, the next Jeff Bezos, the next Elon Musk, the next Mark Zuckerberg over the next 10 years or are these the guys that are going to truly understand and harness the the power of web 3 to its full potential well vitalik buterin had the uh, the time magazine article about him the guy who created ethereum i think you've hit it like the nail on the head there joey like we're going to see new names pop up because we're in that phase just like john talked about with the boom of the internet and it's like everybody and their brother is out there buying up URLs essentially, and everybody just put a name on there, had a little page that led to nothing or a minimal something, which can easily be equated to a lot of the projects in the Web3 world. And they don't really understand what they're doing. They're just putting stuff out there to put stuff out there. Me and John talked about this before the show. It's the 
throwing spaghetti at the wall method. They're going to keep throwing things there until something sticks. But we're, again, going to have that thing that happened with the internet where it's a culling of all of the things that are a waste of energy, time, space, whatever. And there's going to be an emergence of the companies that are going to be the Apple, the Microsoft, the Google, all of those that it's companies and people that really understand what they're doing in the space and they're going to kind of take over. Yeah, I'm always willing to bet that we're going to look back in five, ten years and say, why the heck were we buying pictures of monkeys? <laughs> but it all kind of led to the same place and it led to where we needed to go. Who knows what the heck that looks like, but it's all exciting stuff, I think. Okay. Yeah. All right. So I think we've done enough on that. Let's see. Let's do. Uh, let's do the plane, Matt. How about that? Okay. So. Have y'all ever heard of what's called survivor bias? Oh my God, yes, but no. I would say yes, but break it down for us real quick. Yeah, I'm racking my brain. So there's this story forever ago, and we're going to kind of go into a deep dive here, and it's uh, a post- or mid-war era, and generals were sitting around a table trying to figure out where they needed to armor up the planes more. And basically they had this picture, and I put it in the document, Um, but it's just this basic drawing of a plane and it has all these red dots on it. And it's like, these are where planes were shot the most, uh, when they returned back to base. So they need to put more armor here. And so they put more armor on these planes in this areas. And in this particular instance, it's on the wings and on the tail fins and they sent them back out and there was no improvement in how many planes made it back. They were still being shot down at equal rates. And the reason for this is, is survivor bias. These planes that were making it back were all shot in the wings. It's not a critical area. They were able to still fly. There was no issue there. They put armor where they really didn't need armor. The planes that weren't making it back were the ones that were shot in the critical areas, the engines, the cockpit, the uh, tail part of the plane, and which would cause it to totally fall apart, be ineligible to fly back and get back. And I think we see this a lot in the business world. We have people that are studying the survivor biases, where this is uh, where the companies that worked and have still kind of survived, this is what they're doing wrong and this is what we need to improve upon, but they're not necessarily looking at the companies that didn't even make it that far, that killed them from the start, and that's why we have so much of these little companies that are just like shooting up all the time, they're popping up and then dying immediately. They're not looking where all the other failure companies are, they're looking at, okay, how can we improve the companies that are already out there and making it work? So the company, the in the metaphor, the company is the plane. Yes. And all the bullets are people throwing criticisms at the company, and we don't see the companies that come back to base because they've already flopped in the middle of air and died. Right. Yeah. We don't see the ones that die early on, the early failures. They're only looking at how can we improve companies that are already working, which isn't what you should be doing. You got to look, start at the bottom, where there's the failures from the start, because otherwise you're not going to make it to the point where the plane gets all the way back. I think it's. I was gonna say. Go ahead. Would a good analogy be? Initially, I thought a good analogy would be, you know, everyone looking at Facebook and examining what they do wrong and how we can improve upon that, opposed to looking at MySpace. But I don't even know if that works because MySpace, once upon a time, was the Facebook that was extremely successful. Their failure was they didn't pivot, per se. But you would have. So we should almost be looking at the predecessor to MySpace, which. I couldn't tell you what it was, but there definitely had to have been something out there before MySpace that existed that just completely flopped and failed. But Joey, what you're saying is completely correct. So I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't have a good grasp on it, but you're right. 
is we often we often say, hey, Elon, what did you do to make your company work? And he said, you're asking the wrong questions here. <laughs> mm -hmm. Instead, you I mean, should you be asking the other ones. Yeah. If they're porting problems out in these companies that are already big, like we look at, well, we'll take Tesla, for example. They point out the problems with Tesla. The only Tesla issues are the ones where it has the bullet holes in the wings. These are not things that down the plane. The plane still flies, it gets back, it's not an issue. What you need to do is look at all the failures from the companies that didn't make it, the ones that formed a SPAC, went public, and then immediately dropped. John, you probably have dozens of examples in this case, like Lordstown Motors. Oh. What happened there? Well, I mean, so often enough, I don't have examples off the top of my head, but often enough, when you see companies like that, it's purely balance, it's balance sheet stuff. You take a look and you're like, oh, they were super over levered on debt. They had no cash flow. Like, what, what are you doing? You've got no income here. And then, of course, you could take a look at other companies. And Tesla is always my favorite example because they literally had no cash flow. Into it. I think it was like 2013, 20, it was either 13 or 19. And I get that that's a massive difference, but it was, it was a long time after their founding to where they actually had cash flow in. And so by all means, and I and for the longest time recommended against investing in that company because I didn't think it was a good idea because they had no cash flow. <laughs> they had tons of debt and he kept taking on new debt to start projects, to sell projects, to fund his new projects. That made no sense. Most companies, when they do that, they flop immediately because you just, the second you can't secure more funding from a VC to fund your old debt to, by creating new debt, you're done. Like the, it, the, it literally, it literally consumes itself, and you're it's over. So, that's my answer. It's just companies overlever the heck out of themselves. Yeah, I think Tesla probably wasn't the best example. Maybe no. just any no. of the EV companies that make it versus those that don't. Yeah, but like because Nikola. Tesla's a unicorn at very minimal. Oh well, Nikola it, lied it, it a bunch of stuff, yeah. so that was on them. Mm -hmm. They, you know, fraudulently put out, which is a total bummer. But you know, they put out the video of the truck rolling down the hill and put it at an angle that made it look like it was rolling. It was driving itself and said, Hey, look, our truck is driving by itself, but it was just rolling down a hill. Yeah. I think the, another analogy that works great is someone described it a long time ago is life is juggling a whole bunch of balls. You got to figure out which balls are made of glass and which are made of rubber. Yeah. The rubber ones are the issues that you can occasionally literally drop the ball on something, but you can pick it back up and life will keep moving forward. The other ones are made of glass. You drop those balls, they're broken, you majorly screwed up. And it's the same thing with the planes, whether it's a shot in the engine or a shot in the wing. I like your drop the ball. That was that was punny. That was really punny. It fits perfect. I forget who told me it or where I saw it, but it, it's a fantastic analogy for life when you're really busy and you got stuff going on. You just got to figure out which of the balls that you're juggling are made of glass and you can't drop and which ones are made of rubber and you can pick back up when you need to. Yeah, but business changes, so... I I am a younger guy and I have recently entered the business world and I've I've been lucky enough to see how older successful folks do business and I have a lot of respect for it. I say, look, as a system that absolutely worked back in your day, I'm fortunate enough that we're starting to see there's there's people who've been trying new systems and a lot of them are finding that they work. It's obviously the old way of doing things was you come into the office at five AM and you leave at six PM and you need to work the whole time, you need to be miserable, you need to just keep keep doing this, just keep calling people and keep trying to sell things and keep working on it and keep doing it. And that approach just is absolutely not working anymore because we're all so interconnected and there's really no excuse for a shotgun approach, it doesn't work. And so 
I think a lot of entrepreneurs are using more of what we call a rifle approach, which is you you focus on your product as much. Your product is the bullet, obviously, or I guess the rifle, depending on how you look at the metaphor. You try to refine that as much as physically possible, and you say, okay. I'm going to not, I'm going to hit my target. I'm going to know exactly what my target is. I'm going to nail it. And if I miss, I'm going to get direct feedback from my target so that I can refine it and do it better. The shotgun approach is let's just fire it and try to hit as many things as physically possible. And maybe we'll see if any of those work possibly. Maybe I don't really think that works as much anymore, at least in the entrepreneur space. And I mean, one of the frameworks that we've talked about in the past is quite popular in the kind of tech entrepreneur area of the world right now. And it's the work like a lion framework, which I guys like Naval Ravikant like to laud and um, laud and applaud. <laughs> I love that. But the idea of the framework is that it doesn't make sense to be sprinting constantly. You'll never be able to refine your system if you do that. You should work and rest in bursts. And so you could you can have a week where all you do is work and then you can have a week where you pretty much just coast and cruise by. You don't do very much because you're resting and recovering and getting ready for the next period of sprint. If you're not sprinting and you're not resting, all you're doing is half-assing one or the other and that really won't get you anywhere. As a med student, I can verify that continual sprinting leads to half-assing a lot of things. Yeah, you just beat the crap out of yourself and there's not much you can do after that. But... I don't know. It's a framework that hasn't been totally adopted. And like I said, I think it's constantly changing. I think there's a lot of people that are just always doing new and different things. And it's the, it's the, well, it's always been done this way crowd that is going to get left in the dust as they always do. And it's just business changes. That's the nature of it. Humans change the way we interact changes the way that we purchase, live our lives and choose to exist does change. You want to get deep? Let's get deep. <laughs> I just get frustrated though, that like th these companies that that do it as it always was, they still survive because you look at all the big, we'll go with banking, and then you look at Robinhood. Robinhood had a revolutionary idea that no one else was doing, and they did it, and they got big because of it, and then all the banks were like, oh, we're majorly behind on this, and then they employ it, and they're still sticking around. It, it didn't really, like, cut out the problematic factors in the system. They just, like, waited, and then they pivoted later on, and they're like, okay, we did the thing. Congratulations to us. Pat themselves on the back and move forward and keep doing what they're doing. It, it, it didn't change them fundamentally in any way. That's true. It was just a new system, a new iteration. I don't know. These things move slowly. I don't, I don't think you should criticize something because it only changed the environment a little bit. I mean, what they did is they put pressure on everyone else to do better and to cut costs and not pass those costs directly onto the consumer. And it worked. Right, I agree. Yeah, appreciate it. <laughs> okay, alrighty. We're trying um, to get better at saying that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's I. I don't know. We all we all make mistakes and screw up and stuff like that. I'm not always right. I'm just assertive. <laughs> all right. Um, I love that analogy. Is there anything more we need to do on that? Because I love talking about that stuff. Nope, that's all I had. Perfect. I think we did great. Okay, awesome. So let's stay within entrepreneurial. Uh, stuff. So which one do you guys want to do next? Let's let Joey lead. Do it. All right. Yeah, mine's real short. Um, everyone remembers back at the start of the pandemic, which was two years ago now. Wow. <laughs> Cannot believe that's been our life for two years. Um, we had a shortage on toilet paper and everyone panic bought 
and all of a sudden you were wiping your butt with printer paper. <laughs> um, I'm just kidding. I didn't do that. I hope you didn't do that. <laughs> um, but now we have shortages of lunch boxes and irons. And yes, I did say that irons as in what you iron a dress shirt with because people are returning to the office from work from home finally in mass waves. Um, just saw a short snippet on it because it was behind a paywall, so I couldn't really read into the article and see which industries are going back to office. But I can say from experience, you know, I am starting to see it a little bit. I know my company is half in the UK, half in the United States, and I know the UK offices went back, um, I think last week, and the US offices are aiming to go back in April. But even though people are returning to the office and yes, lunch boxes and irons are being bought up again, that doesn't mean they're going back five days a week, eight hours a day. I think the way my company's doing it is they're asking for one day a week in the office for uh, you know, general team meetings, um, product seminars, uh, different types of training. And I think that's the way most companies are starting to do it. I know my old company, I uh, used to be with FedEx. Now I can talk about them in name because I don't work for them anymore. Um, I was a salesman for them. I know they are back in the office as well, not five days a week, but they were in for one day last week to learn about LTL shipping, which is less than truckload. And uh, they had a couple seminars on it. So yes, people are starting to go back, but um, I would be hard pressed. And I know we say it all the time, if we ever see um, industries return to five days a week, eight hour work days. I just got a question. Did everybody throw out their lunch boxes and irons when the pandemic started or something? Like, I feel like these are things that they don't just expire. You still have your lunch box under your counter and your iron in your closet. It didn't die. It's not like it's going to rot. What happened? That's a good point. Maybe people were like, ah, I guess I'm never going back to the office and just threw away their lunch boxes. <laughs> the end of the world. No more lunch box. Yeah. Or they're yeah, just starting know, back maybe. and they're like, New lunchbox, new me. Yeah, but coming into work all fancy with their Lululemon. Kids going to school too. I mean, back to school thing. So, and there's new kids entering the, entering the school force. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, true. You have huge waves of kids in in uh, grade school right now that really don't know what it's like to be in a classroom every day of the week. Um, I would imagine every kindergarten, first grader, and second grader. It's there's. They don't know what school's like. Dude, that's so and, weird. Uh, oh, that's in so Irons, weird. I know our generation probably, I don't know about you guys, but I don't own an iron, and it's something I need. <laughs> or a steamer, so one of those two. I don't. Steamers are superior. It's never affected yeah. me. I don't know. That's one of those things I was like, I feel like I'm, I'm definitely an adult at this point. Like, I take care of myself, and I do all the things I need to do to be an adult, and I feel like I'm handling it better than the majority of my whole generation. But... I don't have an iron, so I guess I'm like still level one. Yeah, I'm right there with you. It's it's something I thought about the other day uh, when I saw this article, and I was like, man, I guess uh, I need an iron as well. And it's that that whole generation of of people who graduated from college and entered the workforce in the last two three years, but we never had to wear a shirt and tie into work. I mean, yeah, I guess some of our companies require polos, and and you know you can wear polos and khakis or polos and jeans, but. Uh, those different businesses like accountants and, and people like that who require shirt and tie. Now they got to go into the office and guess what? Got to buy an iron. 
I would love. That's my other question. Go ahead. Why Why do you have to wear a shirt and tie if you're going to work in a cubicle all day long, and not have any face to face with any sort of customer? Well, it's an old fashioned kind of concept. So I think I think the I think fashion has been changing, and that's where I wanted to go. Is I think it'd be really interesting to have someone on, or just even have a conversation with someone who works in the fashion industry. I I would swear by this. Business is getting more casual. Like business casual is getting more casual by the day, and it is so much. It is much more acceptable nowadays to walk into a meeting with polo and slacks on than it would have been 10 years ago, I guess five years ago even. So we're kind of at a point where the way that we consume and purchase clothes is different. It's no longer you need five suits and five pairs of uh, white button up and some super nice dress pants, stuff like that. You don't really need those things anymore, especially if you're out and about meeting with customers. It's just more comfortable to do business in a more relaxed sense. And I wonder if the fashion industry has figure that out and it's shifting yet i think it has for women we just need to fix it for dudes though man i mean i go to my school which will shall not be named but they require business attire so every time i come into campus i gotta put on slacks and dress shoes and a button-up shirt and a tie and if it's cold a jacket but like that's what it is for guys now girls they just put on a semi nice pair of pants and a blouse that might have a little bit of freely something on there and that counts as business attire and dude am i jealous because i'm uncomfortable i'm in wool that is like starched and like not necessarily comfortable and i gotta have the belt and tie and all that junk i'm like we need guy business attire that's way more comfortable i want it to feel like i'm in pajamas because i know these girls a lot of them feel like they're in pajamas well you can just have to spend many 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 hundreds of dollars (laughs) Good, good, comfortable business clothes are very expensive. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even not good business clothes yeah. are very expensive. I mean, you can go to Kohl's and you can get some fairly cheap slacks and that type of stuff. But if you want, we'll go with Men's Warehouse here. They fit fairly well, but they're not comfortable. A suit's going to run you anywhere on the very, very low end on a sale, like three, $400. Yeah. I mean, just something that's a little bit better, maybe a designer one, like 800 or more. And that's not like a super, like, huge, nice suit company. It's not like it's Armani or anything. It's still crazy expensive. And then a girl can go out and get a blouse for, like, 20 bucks, a pair of pants for, like, 40 and throw on a decent pair of cute shoes. And I'm like, I'm so jealous. They're, they got a whole outfit in under 100 bucks. Well, those are Florida prices, too. So maybe it changes in other places. But I don't know. Okay, so what do we have up next? Joey? Yeah, we can uh, continue. Uh, do you want to stick in the realm of entrepreneurship and uh, general or move yeah, on? Yeah, we got one more there, so let's get that knocked out and keep moving. All righty, uh, I don't know. I didn't list this down, but I'm definitely a fan of it. Um, I am a Potter nerd. For all listeners out there that don't know me, love Harry Potter. I've uh, been to Universal many, many times, drinking many butter beers. I own wands. Um, I don't cosplay Harry Potter, so I'm not that far. It's a good thing. So I don't think I'm running around with my wands, waving them at people. But they're here just like my Game of Thrones swords. <laughs> and finally, we're getting what looks to be a promising Harry Potter video game. I know it's coming to the PS5. Not sure if it's coming to other platforms. I was under the impression it would be. But then it was unveiled during the PS5 State of Play, which is like their big uh, conference where they release all their large upcoming games and stuff. Um, Yeah, really hoping they don't mess it up here. 
because it's a great franchise and this game has been talked about for a handful of years now. It is going to be, you know, an open world. Uh, it's set hundreds of years before the Harry Potter uh, franchise that we all know and love that is set in the 90s. But I'm very excited about it. I will be purchasing it. Um, I am fortunate enough to have a PS5. And I'm not going to lie, one of the reasons I hunted one down so badly was because of this game. So hopefully I can have Elden Ring wrapped up by the time this game comes out and uh, be ready to rock and roll. Subtle flex on the PS5. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I went a little bit crazy with the on the hunt for one a couple months back. Um, I'm trying to think when I got it. It, it was probably during the fall. I'd say I got it around September or August. But telling you the way to do it is there's these people that have Twitter accounts that are dedicated to tracking PS5 and Xbox Series X restocks. And they notify their Twitter followers as soon as they go live on Walmart or GameStop or Amazon. So I followed this guy and I set his notifications to on. And he notified me and said, GameStop just restocked the PS5. And I immediately clicked the link, bought it. And uh, and that was that. Crazy. My first question was, does Disney own Harry Potter? Because I feel like that's a, that's a franchise that could have so much more to it, and just nothing has been done hardly with it. And I, I just I think of like how they how Disney revolutionized Star Wars and has just brought so much content to market. Marvel, same exact thing. And so I looked it up, and they're produced and owned by Warner Brothers. Uh, so they don't Disney does not own them. So they can't have them on the stream, streaming platforms. They can't produce new content for it. And that, that would just, that would be such a perfect acquisition for them. I don't understand. Why. I, they probably just, there's just no offer, I guess, they could put on it that would be accepted. Well, well, they did try to get it. In 2004, J.K. Rowling signed a letter of intent with Disney um, because Disney wanted to bring Harry Potter to the Magic Kingdom. But then Disney pulled out of the, nego the negotiations citing that Rowling's creative influence and the terms uh, established by Warner Brothers were too stringent. So that's that's about all we know on Disney's, Disney's end that's ever been made public. But I do know through interviews and special uh, talks that J.K. Rowling's given that she also didn't want to go with Disney. They pitched her on their idea for the parks and then she was about ready to sign a deal with them again in in I'd say around 2010 when she decided to go with Universal, but she went and met with uh, Universal Studios to bring Harry Potter to their, opposed to Disney. And I guess they completely blew her away with their vision. And that's when she decided to stick with Warner Brothers and go to Universal instead of Disney. Sure, I get it for the parks and all that, but they, they, they've just missed out on so much content. Like Disney can literally just create and blow content out the butt constantly. That's, that's all they do. And they're really good about it. I... They've just they've completely missed out on this. I have no idea why. I found a really funny picture that I'm gonna try to link. I don't know how. I'll uh, I'll see if I can get this. Like some blog I found. It's a picture of Thanos with Mickey's head on it, and uh, he's got the Infinity Gauntlet thing. And it's each of the stones is Marvel, ABC, Pixar, 20th Century Fox, Lucasfilm, and something else. That's <laughs> so funny. I think uh, Universal is perfect for it though, because Disney's more of like family friendly, friendly, great. Whereas like Universal's like we'll do things a little bit darker, a little bit more interesting, and that just doesn't fit Disney quite as well. I mean, the whole Marvel thing does because it's like superheroes, family, and like so, like obviously if you get into the comics, it's not necessarily that way, but they've still done their best to kind of avoid all the blood and gore, blood and gore and nastiness as they can. They should get uh, they should get Fast and Furious. 
Yeah. Can we end that, please? Vin Diesel. I watched the I watched the most recent two recently. They were so good. Holy cow. They're so bad that they're good. I think that they're hilarious. I just missed the street racing part of it. Like now it's like we're gonna save the world. There's a nuke, we gotta race to get it. Yeah, John Cena you know pulled up. in the last one. The what? The last one they went to space, Fast oh, Nine. That was so funny. When John Cena pulls up in the Mustang, I'm like, Oh, I'm I'm in. Whatever this movie does can't lose. <laughs> Everything's perfect. <laughs> yeah. I've always been a huge fan of them too, and that's another franchise Universal runs, but I don't know if you I'm I'm sure you guys live in Florida. You've been to Universal. Oh yeah. The, they whiffed on the Fast and Furious ride, uh, big time in my opinion. All they had to do is just like make the Vin Diesel family meme over and over. And like there's like a drinking game. Like every time he mentions like like the power of family. Like you take a drink and you're you're not gonna make it through one movie. Oh, that's good. Well, there's like a series of meme franchises that I think are so fun. And I think that they're going to be one of the next college case studies for business students coming out. And it's going to be like Fast and Furious, Jurassic Park. Uh, help me out. There's definitely a few more that you think about. And you're like, these are series that after a few movies realized, well, wait a minute. People all think this is a joke. Let's just lean into it. Mm. I just want them to bring back the actual joke series, the, the pure parody things. Like, we had oh. Scream, and then we had, oh, yeah. uh, what was it, Scary Movie? Yeah. Which was literally a movie about parodying everything. And we haven't had one in a long while. I Space remember uh, the Twilight one. Uh, Vampires suck. Vampires Vampire suck. <laughs> Those movies got a little out of control there towards the end of their fad. I remember that is such a weird fad and point in cinema history. When you, if you go to cinematography school and you look back and study that, that is such, like wow! Like I think I blacked out and just completely forgot all about that. I think, in my memory. Well, I think those made sense back when cinematography wasn't that good. Like it was, it was cool to be campy because you didn't have the awesome camera effects, and you were like, oh, we can't afford this. Like let's do it in a cheap way that really isn't that different, but it's really funny. Now it's like, it's just kind of like painful to watch poorly done stuff, and it's not as funny. I don't think. I think it still is. I think it was great in a sense that like the cinema industry was making fun of itself. That, that like yeah. they were still able to like see like okay, th this was dumb. This is what maybe not their company, but another company did, and this is why it was funny. And it was like everybody could kind of like enjoy that together, like because people make those jokes in their living rooms, but it was more like everybody was having the same joke together. That makes sense. Yeah, I agree with that. I don't know. I feel like funny movies have to be really, really well done at this point. And Ryan Reynolds always does such a good like his tone for everything is hilarious just because it's so kind of like he just he just says it like he's serious all the time. And he says the most ridiculous stuff. And you're like, oh, God, I'm so into this. <laughs> he nails it. He could be in every single one of them and star in so many different roles and be perfect. Yep, yep. And he's got that, like, stupid, lovable face. And you just look at it and you're like, oh, my God, you just look like an idiot. And I, I absolutely want to hug you. you. You're so funny. Well, I mean, what, what did he, his marketing he campaigns. He virtually handsome in, a, in one thing. And I think that was about perfect. That kind of describes what you're saying. That's exactly right. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. Well, I mean, he... Ah, God, he's another one to where you realize you have a following. You realize people like the product that is you and just wrap wrap you into a product and it will sell. Like his gin, I'm sure flies off the shelves. I haven't seen the numbers for it, but it's just like the commercials are funny. Or uh, Mint Mobile, there's a couple. One of my favorite ones, I don't remember what product it was promoting, but it's an advertisement that literally he comes on and he says, they told me it'd be a really bad idea if we let the owner of the company write the commercial. But 
I'm the owner of the company, so I did it anyways. <laughs> he goes in, it just and it's stupid. Like it doesn't make any sense, but it's it's just so on brand. What what did <laughs> you just do? <laughs> what was that? Sold, he sold his gin company in 2020 for 610 million dollars to Diageo. D I A G O. Diageo. Um, yeah. So yes, very successful. Diageo owns pretty much all the big liquor brands out there. Let me look it up. They're a massive company. I believe they're British too. Yeah, British multinational beverage company. So beer and spirits. I'll I gotta get the full list of what they own at some point. Our brands. Yeah, this is super interesting. You don't realize pretty much all the alcohol we drink is under like this one brand. And there's so many pop-ups on their website. Why do I have to do that? Oh my gosh. Oh, they're confirming birthday. Sorry, apologies. One second. I think this is interesting. Yeah, so twenty-one and uh, and reading about liquor. Guinness, Johnny Walker, Don Julio, um, Bailey's. Let's see. This didn't really help very much. Yep, they got a ton of brands though. You get the point. So that is very interesting. Okay, all right. You guys ready to move on? We're uh we're at the. 52 53 mark so let's do let's do cars one company spotlight and then we're good okay awesome so i'll hit the cooler of the car options polestar which we know and love you don't know them they make some pretty cool uh cars and suvs out there that are fully electric they have unveiled a new concept car dubbed the o2 which is essentially like a cool tesla roadster looking thing that is going to be fully electric. So it looks like we're finally going to get a like mass market available, semi-affordable probably, I assume, in the Corvette type range, maybe a little bit more, 40 um, electric vehicle, finally, because we've been waiting on the Roadster forever. This might fill that market and maybe might push Tesla to kick theirs out finally. I gonna believe it when i see it i'm looking at the model now it looks way too cool it's not gonna get released there's no way car companies hate cool stuff they hate it they absolutely hate cool cars i mean but polestar is pretty cool they're just kind of like uh it's car awesome. moms. they do some pretty cool interesting things i feel like they're one of the few that's capable of it yeah i'm i'm gonna link this it's a it's a yahoo sports article it's god the pictures are gorgeous they have to do this it looks like what the 400z from nissan was supposed to be yeah it, it look from the side profile it's got some of the porsche references there it looks beautiful yeah it's really nice futuristic and all that and it says up here this is kind of funky it says it has a built-in drone the convertible has a built-in drone that flies up to 56 miles an hour to film scenic drives i how what the heck does that mean i'm just like you're just like driving down the coast of california and you just press a button your drone pops out Takes a cool video of you with your flowing white grandpa hair since you have all that money. <laughs> Just uh, with the ocean in the background. Fantastic. Go, Love go, it. Instagram drone. Perfect. That's really neat. Yeah, this is gorgeous. I'm, I'm definitely going to include this in the show notes to take a look because it's really pretty. Terrible color they picked, but really pretty. Oh, no, you have it. Never mind. Okay, cool. Awesome. I love it. Next one. All right. Uh, do you want car or company? Cars. We got time. Okay, so similarly in electric vehicle land, Stellantis, which are the owners of Jeep, they teased a picture of what appears to be an all-electric version 
of the Jeep Compass, which tends to be kind of like the uh, Renegade, also kind of like the Grand Cherokee, somewhere in that range. It's a crossover SUV just with Jeep styling. Not super special, but it's interesting to see the Jeep boys doing something all electric. Oh boy, an electric SUV. How original. Love it. <laughs> but it's a Jeep, so yeah. maybe it can go off-road and climb up hills and that type of thing. Who knows? It's... It, so these little tiny crossover SUVs remind me of Bulldogs. They're just kind of like short and stocky and ugly. Yeah, I mean, that's what it is. I don't know what they're going to do to make it stand out in the market other than the fact they slapped a Jeep label on it and that's going to get a certain amount of buyers. Oh God. Maybe it's just got like a super extra thick skid plate on the bottom to protect the batteries and that what makes it off-road. Who knows? An electric, an electric Wrangler would kill. I have no idea why they haven't done that yet. That thing would just fly off the shelves. The nice thing about the Wrangler is it's very modular. There's a lot of things you can take off. There's a lot of things you can put on. And we haven't really seen that type of thing with electric cars yet, which would be fantastic. I feel like it would kind of fit the same market where everybody's building things for the Tesla truck that isn't even out yet. Having a Jeep where it's literally made so that you can easily attach things on and take them off and that type of stuff would be perfect for that market. Yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, I'm not a Jeep fan or anything. and I, But... Their big saving grace is absolutely that you can modify it and change it out however you want. It's literally a toy that you can flip around and create your own ideal image of what a Jeep should be. That is, that is like the nature of the Jeep. And so that's the one thing I do agree with that that company's got right. Yep. I, I hope we see more companies that kick up more modular cars in that type of shape and form. Yeah, me too. And make the make the interiors less technology. I don't, we don't really need that. You just need it to do its job and go from there. But okay, electric compass. We got the O2, the new Polestar, so that knocks out cars. And we got time for one company spotlight. Do your worst. I'm ready for any of them. Do you want mage, comrade, or submarine? I uh, do your worst. Figure it out. Let's do it. Uh, and current Russian uh, trend, we'll go with comrade. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. So comrade, which is spelled C-O-M-R-A-D-E is, and quote, a privacy-first browser extension that displays highly relevant product recommendation and pays you instantly when you visit them. So all the time, you get ads on the side of your browser, or down your pages, and that type of thing. Well, this extension kind of manages that. It decides what uh, ads are put there, and when you click on those ads and you buy stuff for them, you get a little bit of money. They kind of give a share of the money that they would generate from that and give it back to the customer, which I find is very interesting and a first in that world. So they make money by running the ads and then they just pass some of that off to you. Yes. Huh. That's a cool idea. Yeah, I would totally 100% do it. It kind of reminds me of like the Brave browser, but a better iteration of it. I had to stop using Brave because it, it got kind of broken after a while. I don't know why, but I mean, it was just essentially uh, Google... Google Chrome with a big old ad blocker and then they would reward you in their own cryptocurrency, which wasn't really worth much, but I mean, you could stack it and convert it to something else that you wanted to bet on. But kind of like this, does it pay you in dollars? Didn't say, um, I'd only got a short read off it, off a new web three app that monitors new companies that are coming out and such. I looked up comrade, I spelled it wrong. And apparently it's a brand of compression socks. <laughs> it's also a companion who shares one's activities. Those are a fellow member of an organization. Definition of meaning. Yeah, okay, so you're going to have to help me out here and find a uh, find a link to this because I'd love to link this company. Okay, I can get that to you. That's pretty cool. It's a good idea. I mean, 
So the ownership of your own data is a concept we've talked about a lot that I just, I love. And it's, it's the idea that companies are making money off you by gathering your data and then selling it. What if you can have a little more control of that data? Because technically you are the owner of it. And while you are using another outside system and they maybe have some rights to it, I, I think people are really behind the idea that we should take back ownership of what we put out into the world. So that's a good little, it's like a kind of meet in the middle way to do it. Like, hey, we, we're just going to pay you up front. We can't give you ownership of your data, but we can give you a little bit of money for it. Yeah. It's, it's a right step in the direction that we need to be. Yeah, I agree. Okay. All right. I think that wraps us up for the day. You guys got anything else? Nope. I don't think so. Okay. Awesome. I'll get everything linked in the show notes and we'll see you Friday. See you Friday. Friday.